I will be reading Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him from the skies. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all the armies of heaven. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you twinkling stars. Praise him, skies above. Praise him, vapors high above the clouds. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. For he issued his command, and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. He, praise the Lord from the earth, you creatures of ocean depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all livestock, small scurrying animals and birds, kings of the earth and all people, ruler and judges of the earth, young men and young women, old men and children. Let him all praise the name of the Lord, for his name is very great. His glory towers over the earth and heaven. He has made his people strong, honoring his faithful ones, the people of Israel who are close to him. Praise the Lord. I will now be reading Acts eleven nineteen. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles who believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong to his faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tyrus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agbus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to their brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He and the apostolate James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed for him very earnestly. The night before Peter was placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals, and he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. 
He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to an iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his sense. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and has saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be an angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had let him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said, and then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers and what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they went and made a delegation to make peace with him before their cities were dependent on Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastibus, Herod's personal assistant, and made an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat at his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of God, not of a man. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with the sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with words and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. Good morning, folks. My name's Scott Siemens. It's been a while since I've been up here. I used to be up here more often and maybe it's a good thing I'm not. If we uh, think back to what, uh, what was just read for us um, and, and what Herod Agrippa, you know, uh, made a great speech and, and everyone said, it's the voice of God, I do not want you to say that because I do not want to get eaten by worms, okay? So let's be real clear about this. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning and we're just thankful We're thankful that we have people here gathered in this space. We're thankful that we have people here gathered in their homes and and wherever they are. God, because we don't understand time and space, I'm thankful that there are people who are in this moment seeing us in this place minutes or hours or days from now. Time is yours, God. We leave that to you. And so, God, as we're gathered together, whether it's physically, virtually, on a clock, or later, we come before you as a gathered people. We come before you recognizing that, Lord Jesus, you are God. You are Christ Messiah. You, Holy Spirit, are here in our midst. And we give you praise for that. Lord, with what little I bring today, may your word be granted in a way that it speaks to those who hear it. pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week, well, I should say, this is actually quite a big turnout, and what I want to really make note of that, Ben, so if you or Yoriko would just like let Mike know that when he's not here, there's a lot of people here. I, I think that's something Mike needs to hear about. 
That will be my last time I'm ever up here. Yeah. Last week we heard Mike talking about what was going on with Peter. We heard the story of when Peter uh, has this vision and, and this, the, the sheet comes down and there's all of these animals and Peter says, no, Lord, I can't. And God says, no, you can because I've sanctified this for you. It is yours. Take and eat. And of course, then Peter goes to the centurion and, and, and the centurion and his whole family, the first Gentiles, come to know Jesus and become those first parts of the church. And so today, as was read for us this morning um, in this passage of Acts, we're going to continue that story. We're going to continue on with what God is doing in and through Peter. And as we talk about what's going on with Peter and and the way he does whatever it is he does, uh, let's remember that this is the Peter who is a little impetuous, who uh, is is, pretty confident in himself and says, God, if you want me to come out and walk on the water, I'm there. God, if you want me to lop off that centurion's ear, I'll do it. Of course, Jesus didn't say to do that. He just did it anyway. But this is the Peter who's kind of in the mix of all kinds of things. And we're going to see what God's got for him today. I love this whole passage. Uh, Yorko uh, got a hold of me here a couple weeks ago and says, Scott, what do, you, do you want the whole passage read or just part of it? Or, or where are you going with that? And I said, no, read the whole thing. Because in that, particularly the Acts passage... As I said to Pastor Ben here a while ago, there's like five sermons in there. You've got the story of the very first church. The very first Christians were at the church at Antioch. You've got the witness of that church sending relief back to Judea. You've got the persecution of the church where James is martyred. You've got Peter's prison escape, which we're going to talk about. And then, I mean, if there was ever a youth impact sermon... Let's talk to young people about Herod getting eaten by worms. Like, that's a great sermon in there. There's got to be something worthwhile. Out of that long list of possible sermons, I've decided to focus on chapter 12, 1 to 17. Um, In our passage, we'll look to see how Peter falls asleep, and then he's in prison. God's people were praying for him. And then we can watch, as Ben shared earlier, that God's people are just amazed. It was like, oh, God, you actually answered our prayers. We kind of don't know what to do with that. But first, a little bit of a modern-day parallel. And some of you may have heard this story. It came to me probably about a year ago I heard about this. Um, uh, So several years ago, a gentleman by the name of Peter Jasek, Peter, P-E-T-R, because he's from Czech Republic, he was imprisoned in Sudan for 14 months, and he served with Africa as the Africa Regional Director for Voice of the Martyrs. He was traveling through Sudan on their behalf when he gets arrested and he ends up in prison. Peter Jasek tells about sharing his prison cell with the ISIS fighters who were responsible for beheading people. Those were his cellmates. While he was there in this crowded cell with clearly enemies of the gospel, somehow, every night, he's able to fall asleep. After he's released from prison, he goes back to his church in the Czech Republic to thank them for praying for him. And he was moved to tears when he hears them say, you know, Peter, we agreed as a church that every night at 8 p.m., we're going to set our alarms and we're going to pray for you in that prison in Sudan. So here's the amazing part where time doesn't restrict God. 
8 p.m. in Prague is 9 p.m. in Sudan. That's when the lights went out in his cell. That's when he falls asleep. So you may have heard that story. Uh, it's, it's been out in, in, the, uh, in, in the Christian text for a while now, but it's a demonstration of what the earnest prayers of God's people can do. We were reminded last week uh, when Ron Dick stood up here and shared what was going on in their life about how they were coveting the corporate prayer of the family. Well, some of you will have heard that the biopsy results came back negative. And so there was the answer to earnest prayer right here in our midst. And so we're thankful for Marilyn's gift of healing in that regard. Yes. If you've got your Bibles, either in print or electronic version, turn with me to, Peter, to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to read again verses 1 to 17. Because I'm old and too vain for bifocals, I'll take my glasses off. So Peter's imprisoned. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish leaders, he arrested Peter during the Passover celebration and imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. One prisoner, 16 soldiers. Herod's intent was to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed earnestly. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, chained between two soldiers. Picture this for a moment. There he is, a chain on one side, shackled to a soldier. On the other side, shackled to a soldier. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, get dressed, put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought, well, this is just a vision. And let's not throw Peter under the bus here. He had just had the vision with the sheet, right? He didn't realize it was really happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate to the street and it opened all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel disappeared, left him. Finally, Peter realized what had happened. He says, it's really true, he said to himself. The Lord has sent his angel to save me from Herod and from what the Jews were hoping to do to me. After a little thought, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that... Instead of opening the door, she ran back and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally went out and opened the door, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them what had happened and how the Lord had led him out of jail. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. We continue on through that passage, and at the end, in verse 24, after all of the gruesome stuff with Herod's going on, but now God's good news was spreading rapidly, and there were many 
new believers. I want to share just some thoughts for me that come out of that passage, and then hopefully some practical application. The first thing that I see that comes out of this is um, that when Herod begins to persecute the people of the church, it tells us that God allows persecution. Verse 1 says, About that time, Herod began to persecute some believers in the church. And through our study in Acts, we've seen how God does these extraordinary things through ordinary people by celebrating how they were gathering, growing, giving, and going with the gospel. For all the glory of God, all of it for God's glory. It's not surprising to see how persecution is unleashed right after this outpouring of evangelism and discipleship. Don't we expect Satan to do that? Jesus actually promised that that's exactly what was going to happen. In John 15, 20, he said, Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. We have this story of Herod, and, and Julie thought it'd be a good idea for me to put some fun facts in place here. So, okay, have you ever heard of Herod? Well, we have Herod the Great, who ruled during the time of Jesus' birth, and that's the one that ordered all the males to be killed. Then we have Herod Antipas, the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. Then we have Herod Agrippa I, that's the one we meet in Acts 12, and finally Herod Agrippa II. Paul appears before this Herod in Acts 25 and 26. So you got four Herods. The one we're talking about today is this Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great. So he comes from this lineage of politicians. He's learned a few things. And he works hard to curry the favor of the Jews. We see this in verse 2 and 3 when it says, He had the apostle James, that's John's brother, killed with a sword. Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people. So he also arrested Peter. I mean, a good politician figures out what sells, right? This took place during the Passover celebration. So when it says to be killed by the sword, what he's talking about there is James was beheaded. And James and John, who were known as the sons of thunder, who were along with Peter, make up this inner circle of Jesus. And having just received praise for killing James, this, this person who's in, you know, in caucus, who's like right there in the middle of all the politics, Herod decides, we're going to get Peter as well. That's a good, astute political move. And his plan was to hold him in prison until the Passover was over because he would have known that in Matthew 26, 5, it says, but not during the Passover celebration or the people will riot. So, you know, a good politician also understands riots are not a good thing. In verse 4, he says, then he imprisoned him, placed him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. I mean, Herod was appropriately so leery of Christians because they keep performing these disappearing acts, right? Um, Jesus leaves a sealed tomb. Uh, Paul gets dropped out of Damascus in a basket. Peter keeps breaking out of prison. He, you, can't, you can't shackle this guy up. So he's going to really make sure that he's got him nailed down this time. Four squads, four soldiers each, six-hour shift, two handcuffed each side. 
But something else we see here. Well, the next thing we see is that God's people pray. The turning point of this whole passage, I believe, is found in verse 5. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly. So that's an interesting word, very earnestly. When their leader was locked up, on death row, the church turns to God. In the face of overwhelming problems, the church prays. And if I think of this word earnest, it conjures up this, this imagery of, of straining and stretching and, and, and reaching and exerting everything you can. This, this idea of a, uh, maybe of a runner, an athlete, just reaching to cross that finish line. I can only find that word of coming from the Greek used in one other place, and that's in Luke twenty two forty four. And this is a familiar passage to most of us. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This whole notion of earnest, eager, passionate prayer, that's what the church was doing. I expect that's what Ron and Marilyn were doing. I hope lots of us were there with them. While Herod was planning Peter's execution, the church is interceding. They are there. Herod has all the power of the state, but the believers are locked into the power of God, the power of heaven. Just as sweat drops, dro sweat drops like blood fall when Jesus prayed, so too these Christians summoned all their resources, everything they've got, body, soul, and mind, and they cry out on Peter's behalf. They were living out what Jesus tells us in Luke 18. They should always pray and never give up. So here's a question for us, for me. Do I, do you, pray earnestly? Do we persist in prayer? Do we sometimes give up? God regularly does the unexpected when we're in earnest prayer. And we'll talk about that unexpected part in a bit. But I'm going to go a bit on a tangent here because I don't know how to resolve this. And this is where I'm going to throw Mike and Ben and Kristen and, and, and other theologians under the bus. When I shared with our small group that Mike had asked me to, to preach on this particular topic, I, I said, I, I didn't know, again, like there's all these great sermons in there, including the one about the worms. And it's like, well, what do I do with this? And a dear sister of mine replied saying, how is it God delivered Peter because of the prayers of the church when just before that James wasn't spared? We have to believe that the church prayed just as earnestly for James as they did for Peter. Hmm. So what do we do with this as the body of Christ? How do we reconcile this idea that the reality of prayer is being answered miraculously in one instance and it doesn't happen in another? Again, I'll leave that to theologians to answer. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that they prayed earnestly. Ben, you're up on that one. That one's for you. you you'll figure that out for us. Next week. Next week. Deal. The next thing I pick out of this is that God gives peace. A curious and, and comforting response, I guess. The result of their prayer is found in verse 6. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. 
others stood guard at the prison gate. I mean, really. Chains on each arm, in a cold prison cell, fast asleep. I mean, this guy's catching some Z's. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, did he take some Tylenol PM with his last meal? Like, I, I don't know what the deal is there. And what I can tell you is that Julie would say, I'm actually a pretty good sleeper. I mean, in our house, we joke that, I mean, I try really hard to watch the 10 o'clock news. I mean, I try really hard. In our house, the joke is that the CBC National News is actually bedtime stories with Andrew Chang because, like, I've got 10 minutes and then I'm out. I just can't last. But I don't know, maybe even with Tylenol PM, could I actually be fast asleep, shackled on each side? I mean, I just don't get it. Other than this has got to be God's peace. I mean, maybe Peter was meditating on Psalm 4.8. In peace I will down, in peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, keep me safe. Or maybe he was able to sleep because he was holding on to the promise of God that Jesus gave him in John 21. It says, when, this is Jesus telling Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. So maybe Peter is clinging to that promise and saying, well, I've got nothing to be afraid of because God said I'm going to get old. I don't know. If you, <laughs> if you struggle with insomnia... Maybe here's a takeaway for you. Get someone to pray. Have them pray over you. Have them pray earnestly for you in the middle of your storms of life and claim the promises of God. And maybe watch CBC News. I don't know. That works for me. The other thing that I want to take out of this passage is that God sends power and presence. After giving Peter peace, God sends his presence in verse 7. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter. So, again, imagine this. Put yourself there. Watch this whole thing play out on the big screen, if you will. Peter is sleeping so soundly that the bright light of God doesn't wake him up. I mean, what's going on here? As I've told you, you know... I think maybe when we leave things to God and watch him work, the unexpected happens. But we see this amazing deliverance through the display of God's power in these verses 7 through 10 because Peter is so sound asleep, the angel actually has to wake him up with some force. In verse 7 we read, the angel struck him on the side and said, quick, get up, and the chains fall off. I mean, the word struck here is not just a little touched by an angel. It's a forceful blow. It's a smack. So Peter really has to get roused out of his sleep. I mean, it's a good thing he doesn't hit the snooze button because the other place we see the word where an angel strikes is in First Kings, Second Kings 19, and the strike is 185 Assyrians die. Um, so, you know, you don't want to mess with that. In verse 8, Peter we comes along and we get this, you know, this whole idea that now the angel of God has Peter's attention. You know, maybe sore ribs and all, when he says, get dressed, put on your sandals, now put on your coat. Some bizarre instructions here. Really? He's in prison. Don't forget your shoes, and it's chilly out there, so grab a coat and follow me. The angel has to actually wake him up and tell him to get dressed. Then he leads him out. 
And this whole phrase, follow me, has the, the connotation of, and keep following me. It's not just follow me for now, but keep following me. Allow me to be your guide. A really instructive piece that God is giving to Peter. So in the midst of this miracle, Peter's given some practical responsibilities. I mean, the angel could have just miraculously put his shoes on for him, and the angel could have miraculously carried his coat out for him. All that stuff could have happened, but it doesn't. Peter's got to do some things himself. This isn't just about God's miracle. It's about God's miracle of allowing Peter to play along. I like what Warren Wearsby writes when he says, God alone can do the extraordinary, but his people are called to do the ordinary. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but ordinary men rolled the stone away from the tomb. God's not just looking for bystanders. God's looking for people that want to get off the bench. Let's also take note of what the angel didn't say, or maybe what we would have expected them to say if we were watching this on the big screen. The angel doesn't say, okay, hurry up, run for your life, or anything like that. There's just some calm, clear instructions. As one commentator that I read put it, said, omnipotence is never in a hurry. Everything's under God's control. No rush. So now, if you're thinking this is a little weird, this is a little far-fetched, wait till this next part. If you haven't seen the last Spider-Man movie, No Way Home, you're going to want to plug your ears now or press mute on your TV, because here's a spoiler. In No Way Home, we see Tom Holland's Peter Parker once again battling all manner of evil forces, and he's really in a jam. Marvel decides to come up with another Spider-Man, and then another Spider-Man. Marvel invokes this whole idea of the multiverse, or these parallel universes that you know, have Tobey Maguire's original Spider-Man and Andrew Garfield's second Spider-Man all cross this space-time continuum into Tom Holland's reality. Multiple Spider-Men going on doing their thing. I kind of get that idea here. What God is doing, Peter can't quite figure out because it's crossing all of these natural laws of physics and, and, and understanding. Okay, you can unmute now. Which, of course, if you were muted, you wouldn't hear me say that. So I don't know what you're going to do about that. But my response is simply like, what? Like, what is going on here? This whole thing with Peter, our Peter, not Peter Parker, feeling like, is this a dream? I have this image of, of Peter in verse 9 when it says, he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was happening. Again, I'm not going to throw Peter under the bus because he just had this whole sheet vision thing. But I get this picture of, you know, there's Peter just kind of derping along. Doopy doopy doo. Oh, look at that. Okay. Oh, that's cute. Look at that. We just walked out of prison. Oh, those silly guards, they're still sleeping there. Wow, that gate just opens itself. Like all of this is going on while he's walking out the door and he doesn't get it yet. Peter's playing along because it's just too unbelievable. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I when we're in this place of playing along because it's too unbelievable? Peter's strolling through the night air. All of a sudden, the vision's gone. There's no Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, jailbreak going on here. Just strolling down the street. The angel vanishes. Peter comes to his senses and says, Hmm, what should I be doing now? I think I should go somewhere. 
But it's that whole thing of Peter's really just doesn't believe. And it helps me because like, like the father in scripture who says, I believe, but Jesus helped my unbelief. Maybe there's help for me yet. My last takeaway here is that God uses imperfect people. Peter's out of the fog. He decides he needs to do his part. What do we see in verse 12? He realized this. He goes to the home of Mary. So the angel could have taken Peter there. But no, the angel says, no, get there on your own. And I have this idea again that Peter's thinking, oh, this is going to be so cool. I know they're praying for me, right? Because that's what they'll be doing. And he's thinking like, oh, I'm going to go surprise them. I'll bless my brothers and sisters and show them that the power of prayer is so real. Oh, man, if only cameras were a thing, this would make a great TikTok video. And I think what happens next is the funniest thing in all of Scripture. I smile every time I read this. In verse 13, he knocks at the door and a servant girl named Rhoda comes to open it. And he's got to be saying, knock, knock, knock. Hey, let me in. Because he says, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she runs back inside and tells everyone, Peter's standing at the door. Cute, right? I mean, esteemed church leader, jailed for uh, execution in the morning, church earnestly praying, even though their last prayers went unanswered, this whole multiverse, chains falling off, doors opening, all this stuff. Peter wants to surprise the church, goes to Mary's house, doesn't get spotted by Herod's guards, knocks, whispers at the door, hey, it's me, let me in. And the attendant says, one moment, please, I'll have to check with my supervisor. I've only known one other Rhoda in my life, she was an amazing pastoral leader and Jeanette Ween's mom. And so I'm hoping to give this Rhoda the benefit of the doubt and not throw her under the bus. Rhoda recognizes Peter's voice because she's heard him preach. She's so excited, she runs and tells others. Bit of a rookie mistake, okay, but she's excited and she wants to tell people. You'd think that these prayer warriors would rejoice and instead they go, you're out of your mind. And she insists, no, like there's someone there. She says, well, it must be an angel then. I mean, really, they believe in angels, but they don't believe an angel can get Peter out of prison when that's what they've been praying for. Do you see the irony here? But they can't believe God would have delivered Peter. Hmm. What was that again? God uses imperfect people. So the answer to their prayers is standing right at the door, and another great quote from Warren Wearsby says, God could get Peter out of prison, but Peter couldn't get himself into a prayer meeting. I love that line. Back to the whole front gate situation. The prayer warriors are still kind of a little annoyed with young Rhoda, but they also hear this knocking coming out from front. And so, okay, if it's Peter's angel, well, why would it be knocking? Angels can walk through doors. I don't understand what's going on here. When they finally open the door, they see it's him, and they're amazed. And I imagine things must have gotten a little loud, and he asks them to quiet down. And he says, you know, I need to get to a safer place. C.H. Spurgeon says about this text, if the Lord wants to surprise his people, he has only at once to give them an answer. No sooner do they receive the answer than they say, who would have thought? Don't you love that God uses fervent, if even faithless, prayer? Again, like the dad in Mark 9, I believe God but help my unbelief. So, four takeaways. 
Trust God's timing. God and heaven and the heavenly realm were silent on Saturday and Sunday. There was no word on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, still nothing on Thursday and Friday. But then Peter was released at the last minute in the hours right before he was to be tried and executed. Again, Spurgeon says it well, God's never before his time, nor is he ever too late. He comes just when needed. So what do you need that you can trust God's timing for? Point number two, submit to God's sovereignty. I can't explain, although apparently next week Ben will, why James was killed and Peter wasn't. What I do know is God is sovereign. There's a mystery to prayer, like there's a mystery to communion. We have to understand that God is in the midst of that. And God's mystery is our reality revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Can we persevere in prayer and choose to submit to his sovereignty today as a testimony of our church, even if we don't understand what God's doing? Takeaway number three. Ask God for freedom. Those words from verse 7, and the chains fell off. Of course, it's its metaphor for the chains of sin and struggle to fall away from us. If you don't yet know the personal freedom from sin that comes with salvation, today is a day to receive that gift. If you're struggling with chains of life in social or spiritual or, or financial or emotional settings, Come to the front after the service. Pray with people and invite God to take those chains off. As we're learning in the ADC class with, with Ben and Andy, the gospel isn't just about receiving the free gift of eternal salvation. It is that, and it's so much more. It's about understanding the fullness of God's revelation to us. It's about living daily with and for Jesus letting him carry our burdens. Jesus was bound so you could be set free. Ask. And the fourth point, pray earnestly for others. In Hebrews 13.3, it says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also the mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. I have this little fridge magnet. It's carved on a piece of wood and set on it is an artistic version of a dove and the inscription on the bottom is AMBCU. AMBCU stands for the Association of Mennonite Brethren Churches of Ukraine. Today, our brothers and sisters, our family, are being mistreated. There's about 20 congregations, that are large, of Mennonite Brethren congregations, largely in this area of uh, Zaporozhye and Nikopol, Dniprovesk, uh, all the way through to Miloshenks, um, a couple in the Donetsk area, and then also a few in Crimea. I expect some of you are familiar with those names I just shared, the names of those places, because we're seeing it on the news all the time. Today, our brothers and sisters are wrestling with what does it mean to be the church when we're being mistreated 
when our homes are being bombed, when our lives are being threatened, when our faith is being called into question. I've eaten with those people. I've prayed with them. I've worshipped with them. I've been in their midst. They have blessed me. I am praying earnestly for them. I invite you to pray earnestly as well. New Life Mennonite Brethren Church in Zaporozhye. Zaporozhye is where all of the refugees coming out of Mirapol are coming by the busload. Hundreds and hundreds a day are coming to Zaporozhye if they're allowed to leave, if they're not under attack. And they come there by the bus, and where do they go? New Life Church has a newcomer refugee ministry that they started from back in 2014 when the war began in the Donetsk region. And they receive these people fleeing as refugees. And they give them a place to sleep, and they give them a meal, and they have a kids' club for the children. The church does this. A practical way to be God's hands and feet. Never more important than today. When I communicated last with Pastor Andre, and, and, and he asked me not to share his last name, um, he said the ministry today is greater than ever before. Um, those who can stay behind and help. The men asked to be assigned humanitarian duty rather than being asked or forced to carry weapons. We need to earnestly pray. These are our sisters and brothers. This would be like if the Herbert Church, the Saskatoon Church, the Kenora Church, the church here in Regina were under attack. We need to pray. And that takes us to verse 12 at the very end. I know you thought I would never get there. The verse that says, ultimately, that challenges me, and I hope challenges all of us, the verse that says, Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. Can we earnestly pray that? Can we earnestly pray that God would be revealed, that the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit would be so manifest in our world today that there would be many new believers? Are you bold enough to pray this? In the midst of whatever trial you're facing, in these days of social polarization, in the face of war and destruction, can we pray that? God, may it be that your word spreads and that many come to know you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do come to you. We come to you and earnestly pray. We ask, God, that, that, you, would, that you would make alive in us your Holy Spirit. We ask, God, that you would make alive in us a passion for witnessing for you. Holy Spirit, as, as we work to do the things that the hands and feet can do, we pray earnestly for your miracle. Amen.